0: Hello, everyone. Today we welcome Greg Rennie, a psychotherapist and addiction specialist who has worked in several addiction treatment centers in Canada. Greg is a former radio announcer and is currently a co host of the Mind Body Matters podcast. He tells us about his personal struggle with alcohol and he shares his thoughts on the addiction treatment process in Canada. Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, joined as always by co-host Corey. How are you doing, co-host Corey?
1: I'm busy. You and I are. This is a, a busy time in our lives, so it's nice to pause and come back to this on a busy week like this. And I'm glad we're still making time for this.
0: Yeah, me too. And to our listeners, thank you for the grace. Uh, I know we're mm-hmm. not we're not producing like we usually do, but we just we're doing our best. And uh, we've been fortunate. We had a little bit of a tough time there with guests, but we've been fortunate in our last guest, and now we uh, got really fortunate in our, uh, with our current guest here. His name is Greg Rennie, and he is the type of guest that we've been looking for for quite some time. He's oh, that's a setup, a... guys. You're setting me up for failure. Now.
1: <laughs>
0: he's uh, he's got a very interesting background. Uh, he's got his own podcast as well called Mind Body Matters. We can talk about that a little bit. Uh, and he's got uh, he's got experience in the recovery world. All sorts of interesting uh, credentials and experience. So,
2: welcome, Greg. Thanks, guys, uh, Corey and and Nathan. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what we'll
0: we'll start by just kind of giving our listeners a bit of a background on your uh, your career and uh, what your personal experience was. Uh, you started in radio, I guess that was back in the '80s. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, mid '80s. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What was the atmosphere like back then as a radio announcer? I I, I looked at your webpage there. I see you got pictures with uh, Billy Bob Thornton. You got all sorts of celebrities going on. Uh, looks like a whole bunch of fun. Tell us a
2: little bit about that. Yeah, those pictures look like, you know, we were good buddies with all these people. But, you know, it's just a very quick snapshot. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was it was a great time. You know, in the 80s, uh, radio was a lot different from what it is nowadays. The Alcohol and drug culture was extremely strong in the 80s everywhere. I mean, it was, mm. you know, it was a decade of cocaine and everything. But uh, certainly in radio broadcasting at the time, everyone drank and uh, even on air. <laughs> right on. <laughs> I did. Uh, my, you know, my my good friend and co-host, he, he, he did as well. And sometimes you know, a little stoned on air. So it was quite an interesting culture. I grew up listening to a lot of guys in Toronto radio that you know I just idolized and I I, I thought you know as a young kid at 14 you know, wow that's that's what I want to do and I kind of stumbled into radio by um, finding out you could do a a radio show at a community radio station doesn't matter your background or age so I started at 14 wow. I was on air at 14 had my own uh, my own radio show and uh, then uh, went back to school and went pro and went pro in uh, alcoholism. Pro in
0: alcoholism. So at the same time, you <laughs> <laughs> you found that the th- that kind of a backdrop, that kind of a culture, and then I suppose going to school maybe didn't help. And uh, is that where you found you started to run into trouble? Or
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I was well on my way before I worked in radio, but uh, definitely college, like any kind of experience in college, is, is a lot of uh, drinking and partying. And once I got into, you know, a real job in in radio, then my alcoholism escalated. So, like before, I ever even thought of going into the line of work that I'm in right now, it was radio, and I developed a persona, uh, a mask, as they say, in addiction of this radio guy, and it was it was great. It was great because I was young and I didn't really have any identity. Being on air, you can be this, this, this radio guy and you can actually play off of it even off air, you know, because we had fans and we were, you know, signing autographs and things like that. But I definitely made sure that there were a lot of drinkers that were around me that could subscribe to my drinking. Mm -hmm. And it was very easy. It was very easy at that time. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely started to run into trouble. I'm surprised that I wasn't fired from that job frankly because of uh because of drinking. I was warned by the program director once. He said um we noticed that you like to go out to the bars wearing your radio station jacket. We don't want to associate your drinking with the radio station, so just go incognito, please. Uh so hmm. yeah, I, I you know, I I left radio and you know the negative consequences of of addiction um, added up over the years and ended up in rehab and and uh yeah it, it it was very touch and go for a while as it is for many people
0: uh, was that in the late 80s
2: then early 90s like when did you end up in a in the treatment center right so uh survived the 80s and then once into my 90s into the 90s i was married and uh, had, had a child and just kept drinking and kept partying and i ended up in a treatment center a hospital uh, and a rehab in the hospital in 1996. Was it like a 28 uh, day program model,
0: like uh, some of them are now, or was it a 90 day with extended aftercare?
2: How did that uh, look? Right. So, you know, what they call short term, it was, a, it was 28 days. I actually was asked to leave and go home for the birth of my son. And um, I came back uh, shortly after that. So I actually did two stints of 28 days. So Hmm. I guess you can add that up, but I mean, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was the beginning of a new life, really. I needed that kind of direction and I needed that kind of treatment. And the way that I got into rehab, the very short story is, is that uh, I went through psychiatric wards and, and psychiatric programs before I got into rehab, because not only am I a recovering alcoholic, I also have mental health issues, depression, anxiety disorders, and things like that. Um, so they kind of treated both at the same time, the best they could, but that's one complaint I have about the business is that, you know, it's still very silo based. Um, Hmm. you go over here for addiction, you go over there for mental health, but there isn't enough programs out there right now to do it in an integrated way. Agreed. Um, so I had to kind of bounce back and forth to treat those.
1: Yeah. And then how long after that, Greg, did your professional life change?
2: I was told to really kind of focus on my recovery. I mean, those great guys in AA, you know, those guys that have been there for a hundred (laughs) years and they, they have this wise advice and the advice was before you start switching and thinking about a different career, spend a number of years just working on your own recovery. Uh, Because at the time I thought as many people do, well, uh, maybe now that I'm out of rehab and I have six months sobriety, maybe I can be an addiction counselor. And a lot of these people, thank God said, Hey, that's great, Greg, but why don't you wait for about five years or so? So Mm. I focused on my recovery and then, uh, went back to school and then went into the field of addiction and mental health as a, as a therapist.
0: Yeah. I noticed that you've, uh, you've kind of a few different uh, credentials there that are available online. So, you are a social worker, but then you must have went back to school on top of that, I guess, because uh you're now a, a psychotherapist as well. And I notice you've got some credentials specifically in the addictions field. So that's you know, you, you obviously spent some time in school and uh uh-huh. that yeah. And uh that gives you a a pretty good kind of framework to assess our current situation. So First of all I I got to give you props for getting up there and hitting the nut of the park in, in <laughs> right away that that doesn't happen very often um so for I uh, you you mentioned you have 28 years of sobriety so you must have been very motivated and there's a couple factors there that I see as important and one is uh, the birth of a child you know your wife the fact that you actually did do 56 days as opposed to 28 we do have evidence to suggest that that increases your odds of success. Nevertheless, that it's impressive that you were able to do that. What has changed over the last twenty-eight years in your view of uh, what re- what the word recovery means?
2: Wow, we could spend two hours on that subject. Really, we know what recovery means, and uh, for those of you and I'm not sure if you guys are, you know, have experienced an AA, but in AA they talk about. Um, You know, it's a program of recovery, though some people do use the word recovered. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate about it. But, uh, you know, personally, I wasn't pushed into rehab. I went through the psychiatric system to to get there. But as they say, it's for people that want it. And not necessarily for people that need it, because I'm sure on your show and I've listened to a number of your episodes, there's a, a large need. There's families that are, that are trying their best to get people into recovery, but uh, the person uh, has to want it. And I believe that my recovery started at that point where I realized I wanted it. A lot of people around me said, yeah, you really need it. But I was, uh, you know, basically given no choice, no choice, but to work recovery because, you know, I, I didn't have any other options other than. Ending up in jail or ending up dead from alcohol poisoning.
0: Right. Me and Corey have discussed this at length. Uh, we've got uh, our premier here in, in BC, David Eby, who has been criticized and celebrated for his views on possibly instituting a policy regarding mandatory treatment. None of these these big questions have, have simple black or white answers, of course, but uh, it would be interesting to get your view on, based on what you just said personally and what you've seen in your clients?
2: You know, what are your thoughts on that? Should, should some people be forced into treatment? Very good question. And I think it's a very, very important topic for discussion in many different uh, types of media um, is mandatory treatment. Uh, I can speak as I did on my personal experience. My professional experience has been that the success rates, I think the true success rates are, are very, very low. It's a matter of if you're looking at outcomes, you know, it's about a third of people actually stay clean and sober. So there is that two thirds that just can't get clean and sober from alcohol and drugs. Those people, I believe we can help more by having mandatory treatment. And the way that I see it professionally is you look at and you guys are familiar with the Mental Health Act. If you are someone that has a mental health issue and you're a risk to yourself or others, what happens, right? They're put into the system, they're put on a form one or two, and they go into a a psych eval or at least uh, 48 days. That doesn't happen with addiction. But wouldn't you agree that there's a lot of people out there that are harmed to themselves and harmed to, to other people?
0: Yes, I would agree that there are definitely those people who have uh, concurrent mental health issues, and uh, on top of that, are self-medicating to the point where addiction is a, a a huge factor in their ability to identify reality, and and you know the consequences of that can be violence, uh, it can be bad decisions, uh, getting behind the wheel, driving, or you know, all sorts of crazy things that we're seeing with the current uh, toxic drug crisis, but. I guess the tough thing in that is is the decision. I mean, section 5-ing somebody or or basically taking their personal autonomy away based on their ability to make a decision about their uh, their own health is is something that a lot of people, you know, view as uh, a touchy subject. Myself uh-huh. included. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess you need to have the resources in place. There needs to be an agreed upon kind of standard as far as, you know, maybe it's, it is a concurrent mental illness situation or, or somebody who is just, uh, for instance, uh, like David Eby's thing was, why should we be Narcanning people twice in the same day? Huh. As, and like, you know, you get you, somebody overdoses, they, get, they get sent to the hospital they re- get revived. They go out, and of course, because they just had all the opiate uh, opiates knocked off their receptors, they're an immediate withdrawal. They can't keep them in the hospital without Section 5ing them, uh, and they can't really do that based on their, you know, when they come out of a an overdose. It's not like they're cognitively impaired uh, m- most of the time. They they're, they're still able to make a decision, so they they can't keep in the hospital without Section 5ing them. They go back out. They need to use again. And because of the unreliable, toxic drugs that are out there, many times they overdose again. So that is, uh, uh, you know, it's a confusing situation for the people. Mm-hmm. It's probably very frustrating for the people who work at the hospital. Uh, well, just actually yesterday, <laughs> I'm a pharmacist, but here I am out on the street holding a guy who's he seized. got a, got a couple of packs of naloxone with you, and I right, got yeah. my I, I got my tech down in there with naloxone because I don't know if it's. It appears to be a seizure. I know he, I just gave him methadone, but he, he doesn't, he's not exhibiting signs of a overdose. His Girlfriend's standing there, please don't give him naloxone. And I'm watching all his vital signs are good. It looks like a seizure. So all the answers waited. We didn't naloxone, which was the correct move. But, you know, this is, a, this is a situation that it's hard to find an easy answer for. And then of course, what is the uh, success rate uh, for uh, mandatory treatment, especially if you section five somebody? So I guess, yeah, from a resource standpoint, financial standpoint, as a society, you want to be proactive, but Jesus, what do you
2: do? Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot more investigation and research that needs to be done regarding uh, mandatory uh, treatment. My view is that it makes sense to me because I also worked in mental health not only is there the Mental Health Act, and I agree with what you're saying, Nathan, that that's gonna be very difficult uh, to determine. For concurrent disorders, yeah, but if it's just someone that, um, not just, but if the person is just struggling with a substance use disorder itself, and that person, whatever that process is, and I'm not familiar with the politics, but if that person is put into um, the system, put into a rehab on a mandatory basis, I have more faith in that individual sitting across from me as an addiction counselor than I have for people that come in and out in the recidivism that that is in, in rehabs of people that mm, I'm not quite sure if I want it. Mm-hmm. They don't have enough internal motivation. Wow. I mean, I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my job. I better do something about this. Where I think that there's a correlation is the success I've seen surprisingly with people that are pushed into the system for external reasons, their employer, their wife has given them an ultimatum. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to go to treatment or else. Now, those are the most difficult patients to work with in a rehab, but it's amazing on how successful they are. If you can get them into a program, get them detoxed properly, which is always a challenge in, in rehabs, Um, Then there's the opportunity for them to work the program with other alcoholics and addicts. And I've seen great success with that. So if I'm seeing success in the type of patient that has external motivation, they're forced to. They're they're mandated by their wife. (laughs) They're mandated by their employer. It's there. It's there. And surprisingly, they're successful.
1: I'm glad you mentioned internal <clears throat> factors because that, that was what was coming up for me just in, a moment ago in, in our conversation. And I guess the question I have is where does autonomy fit into that then? Given the for some individuals it will be that their their own desire to to want the change aligns with their employer or their wives or or whoever it may be's um, push for them to change. And so their, so the their sense of autonomy is, well, Hey, I, I want this too. I guess, A, what do you do if, if that want isn't there? And is that something that can be attained partway through the process of an inpatient rehab program or, or what, Greg? I mean,
2: yeah, you know, that's the challenge and we're trained uh, uh, and also if, when you work in a in a multidisciplinary team, you have other, you know, uh, other healthcare professionals working along with you. But basically, you know, the goal of an addiction counselor is to get them to, no matter whether it's internal or external motivation that that has brought them there, show them the benefits of recovery, show them the mounting list of negative consequences that are, are going to meet you at the back door when you walk out. In my experience, our job, and I'm not saying all treatment centers look at it this way, because frankly, a lot of treatment centers are, I mean, they almost count on recidivism for, for revenue. But, um, (laughs) if, uh, if the treatment center is set up where everyone is trained properly, we, it's our job to take that person into a program, show them how to work recovery and that autonomy or, or whatever the motivation was coming in it isn't as important as that transformation that needs to happen while they're in a treatment program. I mean, it, it, it happens in healthcare. Someone comes into a hospital for a physical reason, there's a process. And I imagine, you know, there's certain motivations to get help for, you know, uh, gangrene on the leg or something like that. But once they're in there, it, it, the health professionals are trained to treat it. And part of the treatment is educating the person as to what it is, how it happened. And when they leave the uh, the hospital program, they they have a, a plan.
0: It's interesting. Uh, I've heard you use the word recidivism. It's a term that's uh, often used for the uh, prison yeah. industrial con- complex as well. So I, I wonder, is that term used in your experience working at treatment centers? Is that something, is that a term that's used there?
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is yeah, in different it's... ways, but I mean,
0: do you find um, that?
2: Do you do you find that interesting? Well, I guess uh, if you equate it with someone um, going in and out of jail fifteen times, um, that's recidivism. I met lots of clients that were on their fifteenth or sixteenth uh, rehab that the insurance right. company is paying for. Sure seems to be very very similar, um, yeah. and I you know I have a lot of personal views about that, but that's a reality that uh, that happens. Yeah. So, so what does that
0: tell us? What does that tell us about our current, as somebody who's, who's got experience working in these facilities and, and God knows it's not a, uh, an easy job. What do you, how do you maintain your, you know, kind of faith in the treatment approach? I guess you could say I've been in a treatment center with, uh, somebody who I think it was their ninth time and I was. I just, my mouth was hanging open and I, for me, I don't understand. First of all, I, I think there needs to be some kind of uh, limit imposed because of the obvious financial conflict of interest there. I mean, if what incentive
2: is there to improve on a program? What else can they learn? What else can they learn? Yeah. I mean, that's my question is that if they're in 15 times, I mean, you know, they can sit in our seat. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting take on
0: it. So, for healthcare professionals, particularly, uh, you you would have worked with many of them. Uh, yes. That's pharmacists, nurses, doctors. Uh, you must have seen some common factors in the type of struggles and problems that they that led them to require, uh, you know, the, their workplace stepping in, either, you know, mandating them to go to treatment or or voluntarily giving up their licenses in, in some cases. What kind of things did you see there that were maybe more systemic problems or workplace issues or, or even psychological similarities in the, in the type of individual who ends
2: up requiring treatment for addiction-related problems? Yeah, I have worked in healthcare professional uh, programs at a number of hospitals in Ontario, and they are a specialized program in a lot of ways. Uh, there's factors involved. Uh, we're talking earlier about external motivation. There's a lot of external motivation to uh, for a, a doctor or nurse to keep their license by being told you have to go on this program. I find that, um, I mean, no no addict is unique, okay? But what I find is, a, is the difference between, um, you know, the majority of addicts that come into treatment and the ones that come in and they're put into a healthcare professional stream or program. These are highly, highly intelligent people. They have a lot of pride in their work. And I mean, the ego is there. The ego is there for, you know, someone that is a factory worker coming in a a treatment. But what I found is that because the doctor or nurse has worked for many, many years as a healthcare professional, going into the healthcare system as a patient takes a little bit of a different approach. And that's where I see the difference is. What I learned in time, because uh, first I worked with doctors and nurses that were in, you know, regular streams in in in, in the rehab uh, program, then later on worked, you know, in the specialties of of, of healthcare professional programs. And I started um, a program at uh, a company that I founded a couple of years ago, an online business uh, that we introduced caduceus groups online. Uh, so I've had a lot of experience with that. There is a transition that a healthcare worker has to go through um, that I believe it, sometimes is is tougher than than the average person. There needs to be obviously the typical things in addiction, you know, humility, you know, awareness of of their addiction, uh, and education. Surprisingly, because in the healthcare profession, even doctors get very very little education about addiction. I've educated doctors on their <laughs> on their disease that really they should be. Um, there should be trained in In, in, in and talking to a doctor recently on our show, he he said, it's, it's very, very little, very, Mm -hmm. very little information. So there needs to be an education. There needs to be a transformation from yes, you're a doctor. Yes, you're a nurse. And we have high respect for that, but here you're a patient. So we have to work with them through that, uh, you know, that transition and the success rate of healthcare professionals if they're in the right program and if they see the benefit of peer support, which is, I believe, more important for a healthcare professional than the peer support of of someone coming out of uh, a a treatment that might be in a different profession. Peer support is uh, is found in many different groups, but commonly in, in what they call a caduceus group, right, for healthcare professionals. I think that's key, especially in aftercare. Aftercare, I think, should be mandatory. If you want to talk about mandatory things, I think aftercare for a year or more should be mandatory. But the the benefits that, a um, you know, a doctor or nurse has is when they finish rehab, chances are part of the hoops they have to go through for their health program and to ensure their license is to uh, go into a caduceus group. Mm-hmm. And they're, like, they're not unique from other addiction groups, but I found that there needs to be mutual respect for, uh, for the professions that, uh, that they're in that very quickly, even without our intervention, other peers in the group, other doctors and nurses are able to help that person take off, you know, the hat of a doctor or a nurse and say, you know, you're a psychiatrist, man. I really have a lot of respect for you. I'm a surgeon, but you know what? You're the, you're like everyone else here. We're, We're all working on addiction. There is a statistic that shows, I'm not sure where it is, but uh, I believe it's true based on my experience, is that a healthcare professional coming out of rehab, if they go into an aftercare program that is peer-based, is a caduceus group or whatever that may be for a period of time, and at least in Ontario, sometimes that period is five years, there is a much, much higher rate. Earlier on, I was mentioning about a third, so roughly, you know, 30%. Uh, apparently the statistics of a success rate of someone, let's say, you know, staying clean and sober is roughly 80 to 85% once they come out of that five-year monitoring program and that five years of that, that, that specific type of peer support. And I I believe that it's very close. I don't know where the statistic is, but I believe that's very, very close. So there is a a different approach. There is that transition that the healthcare professional has to go through to realize much of them don't like it. I am a patient and I have to be a patient. I'm not a doctor in this case and I need to look at it from that lens. Then, um, they can be very, very successful, but it takes an approach that some treatment centers may not realize. And, uh, I think there should be more opportunities for healthcare professionals.
0: Okay. Uh, thanks for that response. Yeah, that, uh, I, I agree completely with the, uh, the benefits and peer support has been uh, huge in both me and Corey's uh, recovery, and yeah, I mean def- the statistics definitely support, especially uh, to show any real uh, effect. Ninety days appears to be the minimum. I mean, if you're not engaged, oh, I
2: totally agree.
0: Yeah, oh, so yeah. I guess the the question that I've I've often wondered with uh, treatment centers specifically and maybe you could answer this on a personal level too, but what do you consider a success? Because I mean, the way that some treatment centers or all treatment centers in Canada are allowed to present themselves is uh, there's some of their success rates are based on curated uh, follow-ups and those follow-ups can be as short as one year. So, when I mean curated, I, I mean they don't take into account uh, people they can't find. They don't take into account people they kicked out. They don't take into account people that were had uh, maybe successfully managed their whatever the problem was but weren't abstinent. So you come up with numbers that uh, you know, say you're a family and uh, you're desperately searching for a solution. You've got a child that's you know, uh, you're worried about uh, because of their addiction. And you go online, you look, and you see, oh, wow, this center's at 90%, 85%. Right. I've successor. seen it, too. Yeah. I've seen it, too. What are your thoughts on on the government or some sort of regulatory body stepping in there and, and trying to shore up the transparency and the, the a, a more realistic presentation of, a, of what we can do here? I mean...
2: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it. I, I mean, personally... You know, I, I went into an aftercare program um, and then, you know, really kind of dived into AA. But if I was in an aftercare program for uh, a longer period of time and there's follow ups with me, even though I was in a program, um, I could still relapse. I could still use. So personally, if someone called me from my rehab a year and a half later after I left and said, hey, Greg, are you still clean and sober? I say, yeah okay thank you very much and add that just to the statistic I mean it just we we all, you guys uh understand as long as uh, as well as probably a lot of listeners that you, you like how do you measure success because if you're measuring success by following up how's that follow-up done right well
0: yeah and maybe that ties into some of the problems with uh looking at it in a uh two-dimensional manner like what if we focused instead on instead of asking the question, "Are you clean and sober? How about we we you know, present maybe as part of your uh, initial treatment, will you you could offer a maybe a, a a reduced fee for services if you agree to follow do a follow-up questionnaire, say once a year for the next, let's use five years and as an example. And the question is not, "Are you clean and sober?" The questions maybe there's ten, maybe there's twenty. We make it short so it's not too ridiculously cumbersome. But how are you doing? Where are you living? What kind of a job do you have? Are you still with your wife? What's your relationship like with your kids? You know, in other words, look at the uh, uh, the quality of life that the individual is managing. In other words, are they managing their life? You know, that's that's one way that 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 could be a possibility.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of validity to that. Um I, I think um when you when you ask the question about success, the the first thing comes to mind is is what is the definition of? So I'll throw it to you guys. What do you see as a definition of success in this case?
1: I mean, I, I can just answer for myself on like on a on a personal level. I think success was living a life that was Living a lifestyle that was aligned with my personal values, becoming aware of those personal values, generating, creating balance in my life for sure. And and then maintaining that, certainly the quality of, of interpersonal relationships and the ability to be transparent and be emotive and expressive within those relationships. I would say that's a big measure for me. You know, and then for me, just on a personal level, which I hadn't mentioned to you yet, Craig, was that I, for me, it was to, to not go back to my career, to make the decision that I would be autonomous and be uh, true to myself. Going back to those, the statement about personal values, that, that what I was being offered didn't line up with those values. And so for, you know, for me, I think if I had have gone back to being a nurse, as it was being presented to me, as the options were being presented to me, that would have been more harmful for me and more, uh, potentially detrimental or risky to my, to my sobriety overall. Now, I, I fully appreciate that it doesn't look like that for, for every nurse and doctor, for sure. And mm-hmm. There's lots mm-hmm. that do that go back for, but for me, what was kind of being unfolded with what the limitations would be in the, you know, sort of the confines that I would have, it was just probably going to put me at risk in, in so many ways, I think. Mm-hmm. So, so overall, I think those are the measures of my success. And then, then there have been so many surprises in, in success. So many surprises of success that I didn't expect would, would come. And that's sort of the, the, um, oh, some of the, you know, we, you hear the term sort of the gifts of sobriety. Uh, oh, I relate to
2: that big time. I've seen yeah,
1: it. and And I think that if it is. For me, those gifts came through listening to myself, learning how to listen to myself, and trying to maintain alignment with what my personal values are. Yeah, I relate to that a lot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great answer, Corey. Uh, I relate. uh, We've talked about the values and uh, the importance of cognitive harmony. I mean, I I think that's one of the problems with our culture, uh, especially when you're in a healthcare profession, is we don't have time to think. And, you know, we're not, like you mentioned, Greg, I mean, it is preposterous, the, the low level of training we receive regarding the risks of addiction in our careers. As a pharmacist, you would think you've, you've got access to the best drugs in the world all day long. And you would you would expect that there would be... Is I don't know maybe a course on that or right, <laughs> like right. it, just to, just to to make to raise awareness now whether or not that's going to sink in when you're at that level uh you know it, w- when you're in college or not I don't know uh, I don't know what the outcomes would be of something like that but you would think that they would at least uh, uh, that universities would try a little harder there I was surprised in my, like, my arrogance my how my ego allowed me to somehow, you know, because I'm a professional, uh, I'm somehow immune to addiction and that I can play with those substances because of my uh, educational background. Huge pitfall, huge trap, complete lack of uh, self-awareness. And that, I think, is 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 one of the main kind of uh, silver linings of yeah. uh, of coming out the other end of this is that I am now aware... Of how vulnerable i am specifically to that substance um but also to the pitfalls of working in an environment like that now i don't spend a lot of time in pharmacy anymore i limit my shifts severely and i'm on my way out i'm uh uh you know i've been in and out just <laughs> trying to quit for what Corey, christ five years now <laughs> uh But I have limited, like I don't work more than three shifts a week. I know I can't do that because I get to a certain point where um, stress becomes such a motivating factor that I can no longer handle drugs safely. So this is something, this this has been learned through the experience of, you know, going down that dark path. So yeah, I mean... self-awareness, understanding, and then everything that we've uh, learned through basically peer support relationships. I mean, uh-huh. that's where that's what got me through treatment initially. That's what made it so that I could uh, get through the facility without being thrown out. I was definitely going to be thrown out. And then I, I really do think that it, it was those like the caduceus meetings, like you're talking about, Greg, that those were the people that really that really understood, and that's kind of what I was looking for from the beginning. Even before I was sent to treatment, uh, and I remember asking the college, like, can you please, you know, you must have another pharmacist who's been through this. Can you, can you put me in contact with them? Well, no, we can't do that for confidentiality reasons. Okay, okay, whatever. Uh, when I got out the other side, I went to the college and said, look, remember when I asked you about that? Now I'm that pharmacist. Can you please put people in contact with me when they reach out on the other. No, we can't do that because of confidentiality. Unbelievable. I mean, so uh, that was, I mean, it was one of the motivating factors for for our podcast was to make sure that line of help is out there.
2: But uh... earlier I mentioned about ego and uh, I hope you guys didn't feel that I was saying that healthcare professionals have a swell head or an ego. Oh, they do. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god man I, uh, yeah hey therapists therapist too man <laughs> I, I could say this therapists
0: uh pharmacists nurses <laughs> we are nothing in comparison to uh uh surgeons you wanna you wanna talk guys <laughs> uh, uh those are the uh and yeah i can i think i could say that with a fair amount of certainty that uh they are a, 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 type, a type of uh, professional that uh, seems particularly
2: proud of their position, and and I, I mentioned they, that, yeah, right. you know, I mentioned that that you know, it, you know, the the type of patient that I work with that was a doctor or nurse has great pride in their work, and I have great respect for healthcare professionals. If it wasn't for guys like you, if it wasn't for doctors and nurses, when I was in rehab, man, I'd probably be dead. So, I mean, I, I love working with the healthcare profession. What I think what I was getting at with ego is what you said, Nathan, is that there, there isn't a lot of training and education on addiction. So once, uh, I'm working with a doctor or nurse or, or a pharmacist, it's hard to get past that whole thing of, yeah, yeah. I know Greg, I'm a pharmacist, Greg, I'm a doctor. You can't tell me Ugh. about any disease. You're saying that this is a disease. You can't, you can't show me anything. And that's what I mean by the ego is that they have to get past this. They have to have a certain amount of humility that maybe there's something to be understood, something to understand for themselves, but also in general about addiction, that they should have an open mind and trust the process. Where sometimes, you know, that's the wall that I've, you know, butted up against with a healthcare professional is that they're not open to education about what it is. And that takes some time, but that's what I I really mean by ego is trying to get past that point where there's this belief that you guys can't tell me anything about this. I understand. I get it. I get it. I get it. That's kind of the response I would get. And I said, oh, I understand. And and, I mean, you've got tons of more training than I do, but what we're trying to do here in this program or in, in this group is help you understand addiction so that, you have the right perspective going into recovery and no offense, but unfortunately you weren't given that insight. Unfortunately, you're going to have to learn now. It's interesting in that
0: I don't think that it's even something that like we like to, you know, Western culture reductionist thinking uh, all our medical training is parceled and, and taught in categories. And so you know, I, I can understand how you would you would run up against this because, especially, you know, a doctor would, would say, well, you know, if you're if you uh, are somebody who looks at addiction as a disease and and that's the the take you're going to take uh, you're you're going to use to describe it, then then this should be something that I can just figure out, right? right. And it's not for me personally. There was a part, and this is. I think what they're talking about in AA, I mean, I'm not, a, a, I'm not a fan per se. Uh, it, that, that model doesn't work for me, but it has, it's worked for lots of people, and that's great. What they talk about is uh, a spiritual awakening. For me, I look at it as faith, and not per, in a, a higher power or God or anything like that. I mean, I, I, you can have whatever one of whatever views you want on that. It's that some problems require solutions that are not available to the critical analytical part of our mind you know what i mean it's you you have to at some point take a leap of faith and to take a leap of faith uh which i believe is something you're you're trying to get people to do you can't do that with your ego up you need to be able to let down your shields and that's where vulnerability comes in so if if, if you could I mean, you probably spend half your time. I I, I mean, y- y- you could speak to this, but trying to get an individual who's got uh, an iron ego to let down their shields enough so that they could consider that maybe, first of all, they don't know everything about the the condition. And then secondly, that perhaps there are other ways of thinking that they're not even aware of and maybe don't even reside in that part of your mind or, or that, uh, you know, kind of paradigm that we have in the West, you know, is, is that something that, that, that aligns with some of the work you're doing?
2: Yeah. Well, it comes to mind, I mean, just personally and then professionally, but personally, and believe me, I'm not at a mensus level here. I I'm, I'm, I'm not a brainiac, uh, but, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, limited <laughs> in my, in my education, but I, an astute sponsor told me when I was in AA, after I was intellectualizing what addiction is and, you know, having this very heady uh, discussion in my mind and dissecting it isn't, is isn't an active intellect, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that was my ego. And he said, Greg, maybe you're just too smart. And well, of course I would take that offense as an addict, but no, I, what I understood later on is that if you stay in your intelligence, if you stay in your intellect, which, I mean, a healthcare professional needs that. Uh, I mean, you know, they wouldn't graduate, they wouldn't be working in the field if they didn't have a very strong intellect and to understand and problem solve, right? But this is something that you can't problem solve or use your intellect with exactly what you were saying. There's that that barrier, unfortunately, for some healthcare professionals that they don't get past that and, and they struggle. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it, addiction is very, very complex. I mean, I, I mean, we we barely know the neuroscience of it, you know, compared to other other illnesses. But it's not something you can figure out. It's not something that you can, you know, write a paper on or you know sit and and discuss in in lofty ways and come out with aha, now I understand it. I'll use that fact. Or as you said, faith. And that's going to help me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's a that's a barrier that any addict has. But I find that the let's say smarter the patient or client is, meaning that not IQ, but their their constant processing is very very high level, right? Mm-hmm. Like for example, like not not you know I'm not trying to insinuate anything with healthcare professionals, but I mean I found it with engineers as well. Uh, one of the first things I, I would ask a, a patient in uh, in rehab is what kind of work? Some would say, well, I'm a structural engineer. Oh, oh boy. Okay. It's going to be a long day. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not a comment on that person's intelligence. That's a comment that, okay, I, understand, I I have a pretty good idea how this person thinks. It definitely is not a disease that you can, you can figure out. And uh, that's been a challenge for many people.
0: Yeah, there there's definitely a, a cultural kind of especially a vocation related cultural backdrop to everybody's perception of, of addiction, mm-hmm. uh, which puts them, I mean, let's nurses are a great example of uh, there's a group that's they're having a tremendous problem with hydromorphone. And that's oh, yeah. there's mm-hmm. we've looked at all sorts of psychological reasons why that is. Uh, another example would be RCMP. I got to the point where I started uh, refusing service <laughs> for uh, uh, RCMP members because th- there was two factors that I found very difficult to to get past. The one is is the culture of alcohol and their beliefs around drinking as uh, just as a vocational group. Like you said, uh, you described your your background on radio where it was like, if you don't drink, you're like, well, what the hell's the matter with you type of thing. A mm-hmm. lot of RCMP, and it's just changing, but alcohol is kind of their go-to thing. And their view on drugs is that it, drugs are bad, they're a totally different thing, and that alcohol is okay, which is <laughs> you know, logistically preposterous, uh, yeah. but that's a whole uh, other kind of thing. The other issue that makes... That, that I found uh, difficult was because they're so used to being in an authority position, uh-huh. uh, it wasn't so much that they were, you know, uh, wrapped up in their, their own kind of cognitive process. It's just, they couldn't allow themselves to be vulnerable enough to, to open up and, and really get to maybe discussing some of the, the things that the, the drivers, the things that led to the problem in the first place. And, uh, I just, I mean, my, I don't have extensive experience and, I, it's not that every individual I've encountered who is, uh, works for the RCMP is like that, but that is definitely something that's a, a salient kind of cultural backdrop. So, I mean, yeah, I,
2: all these factors come into play and that's, that's another reason why it's so complicated. I'm, I'm not surprised that's your experience. I, I haven't worked with a lot of RCMP, but uh, a phrase I used to use is that, uh, there's a need to take off the uniform folks. Uh, there's a need to take off that hat. Uh, Yes. yes. You know, if, if you're going to stay in uniform and maybe that's the same thing with military, I don't know. Uh, I haven't worked with them directly, but I'm sure that's part of it too. I can speak to working with police officers and I found the same thing, you know, earlier I was talking about that barrier that I have to get past and, you know, addressing, um, ego, uh, and, you know, their perspective about who they are in that group in treatment is not their profession. So for some, yeah, um, take off the uniform and, yeah. and just be there, be vulnerable as an addict, like the rest of the guys are in the group. Yeah.
0: The, uh, the professional identity. Yeah. We've, we've discussed that and, uh, the pitfalls, uh, how they set you up in uh, academia, they blow so, so much smoke up your eyes. By the time you get out of school, you think you're invincible. This has got to change. You know, we need to be able to take off uh, the uniform when we're when we're not at work and realize that your vocation, your profession, whatever it is, it's great. It's, you know, it's, it's something you could be proud of, but it isn't,
2: you know, it isn't all of you. It's just one piece of you. Yeah. It's not the whole story. But isn't it convenient though? You know, understanding addiction, you guys understand addiction isn't it convenient to keep the uniform on? It was convenient for me back in the days of radio to keep this persona as this uh, radio guy, right? You oh, know, of course. Um, I, I, I I equate it with actors. I understand actors. You know, they have difficulty just being themselves. They can be mm-hmm. another character and they they constantly take more and more work because they on stage or, or on screen uh, because they're comfortable in a character, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. I was comfortable in the character of being a radio announcer and signing autographs and, hey, you know, this is who I am. And then... Um, when I got out and I got sober, I thought, holy shit, who the hell am I? (laughs) I, I had to shed that. I had to take that character and that mask and put it aside for, for me to understand
1: and to move forward. That's such an interesting thing that you said about convenience. You know, I I think from my experience, the things that I was learning, particularly early on in going off of work and going through a, a rehab program. Concurrently currently doing one-on-one therapy. The things that I was learning changed my perspective on my relationship with my job and my identity that was so linked to that. And the, this sort of feedback loop that would happen within myself and, and the relationship I had with my job. So I guess then my question goes back to, for the individual and my, again, my perspective is that I said it is unhealthy for me to maintain this. But if you choose, if the individual chooses to go back to it, how do they sort of achieve balance and that perspective shift? Does that perspective shift have have to happen? How do they maintain resilience alongside that ego that exists?
2: A very good question. I I think that if we're talking about healthcare professionals themselves, I think it goes for anybody, is that recovery isn't something that you finish. Whether doesn't matter what profession you're in, because yeah, there's there's risks for you, you know, going back as as a nurse. But this speaks to the biggest message that I have about recovery is continued care offered, but also for the person to continue the process when you go back to work, no matter what profession you're in. There's just a a great importance to continue the work. There is, I mean, it's the Western thinking, right? linear. You know, I'm done. I mean, they, uh, which I think is horrendous but they have graduation ceremonies at rehabs hmm. like what <laughs> what yeah. are they graduating from yeah. <laughs> it's it's the beginning because as soon as you take alcohol and drugs away from from an addict that's where the work begins and that's why there's there's a, a high rate of relapse so what i'm saying is that if the person's going to go back into the job it isn't as important as what the job is it's important as to what kind of continued care they have and how are they going to maintain because One thing I was going to say earlier, and hopefully I'm not getting off track here, is that in the system, we do well in helping someone get sober. We do a real shitty job in keeping them sober, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Oh,
0: you couldn't be more on the mark there and uh, your previous comments as well. I am shocked and I continue to be shocked by the lack of emphasis on post-acute withdrawal. And for sure it is, it's, it's just stunning to me that, I mean, if you're going to have, uh, if we're going to allow 28 uh, day programs to exist, they should only exist as a introduction type program into, to maybe give you an idea of, of what you're facing and why the detox part of it, although shitty, horrific, you know, you don't want to be there type of thing. It's actually the, you know, the years to come. It's the it's the nine months out when you still, you can't figure out why you still feel shitty, even though you haven't had a drink or, or you haven't done any drugs or whatever. And people, it's just not discussed to the level that it needs to be discussed. So I like I mean, people are, every day I talk to somebody that they post acute withdrawal, what is that? Well, that's the thing that takes you right back to square one, right?
2: People so, associated yeah. with acute withdrawal, right? They go, yeah. Oh, well, so, like, there's uh, some physical symptoms. there. No, no, no. Get educated on on PAW, post acute withdrawal, and what yeah. it is, and and it blindsides so many people.
0: Yeah, it is the it's it's far more challenging because of the duration, the unknown you know yeah, i mean think of somebody who's been an iv drug user for 20 years and they they decide they're going to try to make a change not supported by opiates let's say and 3 years later they can't figure out why their hand won't stop shaking or their or the brain fog is so bad that they can't work a machine at their job or whatever it is the blow to your morale you know you think well this is never going to stop I'm just, I'm fucked for life, I guess, right? Because there's no education around the fact that the nervous system takes time to recover. And sometimes that can be a lot longer than people think.
2: That's um, exactly what I was going to say. It has a lot to do with the central nervous system, for sure.
0: Yeah. Something that we did want to ask you, because you're, you've are yep. you got all sorts of uh, experience with treatment centers. I mean, as somebody who's been in a treatment center, somebody who's worked in a treatment center, what do you see as challenges for our current models? And uh, what do you see as possible areas where we can improve? What would you like
2: to see? You know, What are your thoughts there? Well, it harks back to what you're saying about 28-day programs. I, I think they should eliminate them. I mean, I've worked in them. I've been in them. And I think that they're perhaps suitable if you, for lack of a better word, triage where the person's at with their substance use disorder. We, we know that it's a spectrum. So possibly 28-day programs are are suitable for, for some people that are at the early stages, you know, and, and 28 days would be enough to, to get them on track. But the problem is, is that we're constantly putting in patients into a 28 day program. It's not suitable. It's not enough time. And I, I think it sets the person up for maybe not failure, but sets them up for an expectation. Certainly the family's expectation mm, yes. that, and, the, you know, in, you know, in the celebrity world, right. Someone has um, an addiction to cocaine. It's in the news. So-and-so has an addiction to cocaine. And PR says, well, so-and-so is going to go into rehab. And then there's all this media about so-and-so has been to rehab. Off he goes, right? It's kind of like, um, you know, he got that gold star. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's good to go. He's fine. And that is a prime example of the perception people have about 28-day programs. I think there should be a minimum of 90 days. But more importantly, if I can get any message across, is the importance of continued care and especially aftercare Mm. aftercare in some of the places I worked at was an option. Why, why is that an option? If anything should be mandatory, it should be that if you go into a 90 day program, well, first I believe in residential for, for many different reasons, Uh, a 90 day residential program that has at least a year mandatory, attached to that program and then other supports after that, because I'm not sure, you know, if you experience an AA, but the high rate of people that relapse in the first year is extremely high. Sometimes like right on the day of their one year anniversary, because they have that perception, I've got a year sobriety. Yeah, I guess uh, we're, we're
0: actually uh, cruising along here. We could probably talk to you for like uh, five, ten. What do you think, Corey? Oh, I'd, I'd be out. game for it, too. Yeah, you're a great guest to talk to, Greg. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you've got your own podcast, and I think you have a co-host as well. Uh, what's right. your show about uh, what's going on over there?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mind Body Matters is the name of the podcast. We're on our ninth episode, so we're we're still pretty pretty new. Having a great time with it because, as it, I mean, for me, it's an extension and culmination of a lot of things I've been doing in the past, right? I did radio, so I mean, that's what radio is now. It's podcast. I mean, ter- terrestrial radio right now is dead or dying. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I listened to AM or FM radio, so that seemed to be, you know, a cinch. Uh, going back into radio, uh, but it, as, as a podcaster, also, you know, the whole thing of, and you guys do it very well with recovery machine. You know, you have a focus, you have people know what your podcast is about. So when we were deciding on what kind of topic we decide that mental health, okay. Emotional health, physical health. Yeah. We could talk about helping people understand not only addiction, but bring in an expert as a, as we have regarding long COVID.
1: Um, mm, right. We had
2: a, um, an expert from DePaul University in Chicago talk about long COVID. But what's really the key there is uh, Dr. Jason talked about the connection between the mind and body regarding long COVID. So whenever we have a guest, no matter what the topic is, the, the, the focus, and what we try to understand the first question we ask is, you know, how do you see the mind-body connection? That focus comes personally from me understanding myself and yes. my addiction and my mental health. And now as I'm getting older, my physical health, um, <laughs> how there's a huge connection. I mean, I just, I, I just found out recently that when it comes to neurotransmitters, that there's receptors in the body, not the brain. That's as much as I, I didn't know that, mm-hmm. uh, but that came from talking with um, from somebody on the show. I wanted to incorporate a co-host because as you guys, you know, have it, you know, you have the banter and, you know, you have the connection between the two of you. Rob Reiford is, is my, uh, my co-host who I worked with back in the eighties. He was a drinking buddy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so both of us are sober. Uh, we decided to go back to radio and with the focus of the mind-body connection, emotional, physical health, then, um, you know, we talked to people, not only our experts in, in different fields, but also people that have Story of recovery, uh, story of resilience, and yeah, I, I'm really, really enjoying it because it's it's a it's a combination of many, many different things. Yeah, and you get to learn, right? Oh my god, yeah! Mm-hmm. Isn't that great when you have it a guest is great. and you yeah. go, "Holy shit, I didn't know that!"
1: Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, Greg, there is a relationship there between just the pra- I mean, whether it's in peer support or in a podcast, but Maybe specifically in in the podcast, I'm asking like dialogue with other people. We're learning for ourselves. You're putting kind of, you've put the two things together. This, your podcast really seems like the culmination of these two halves of your professional journey. Uh, I just wondered like, were there roots of that when you were in radio, were you aware of the power of, of being curious, the power of dialogue? And not to say that, you know, Van Halen gave you the key to life's (laughs) mysteries, but were were there, were there sort of seedlings of of this, what what you're doing today back then?
2: Hey, what does a 19 year old know anyway? And if you ask a 19 year old to say, learn, I got it down. (laughs) So that's, that's, you know, I was 19 when I went into, into radio and then I worked in my early early twenties, you know, I started when I was 14. What the hell did I know back then? And I think you need to know a certain amount to know that, as the phrase says, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. That's right. Yeah. And I I, I think that came much later on to answer your question. I think it came probably, it started in recovery, understanding how I tick and how, you know, my mental health impacts my addiction and my addiction impacts my mental health. I got to, I got to work those two every single day. There's always the risk of, um, depression There's always risk of that voice in, in, in the background telling me, well, you don't have to feel this way. You can have a drink. And then I got to, I got to battle that. I, I had to learn, I had to learn about myself, but what I found going back to university to get my degree in social work, I was on a high, right? I was on a high in recovery and I I felt kind of uncomfortable with that because I wasn't quite sure where it was coming from, but it came from learning. Mm. You know, I went back to university and every day was about learning. And, you know, my, my brain was just on fire and I think any opportunity that I have to learn more about something, I learn things about the discussion we've had today, you know, with, with you guys uh, uh, talking with me. So I think it came much later on. I think that there was the opportunity in radio to do similar things that we're, Rob and I are doing right now. You know, we did interviews, you know, I interviewed, you know, some 80s hair bands and, and stuff like that, but. That was very much in the character or the role that I had at the time. And uh, the radio interview style is much different than podcast. I, I think in some ways, I feel that the the focus of the podcast to learn more is actually kind of a selfish thing because I like that high. I mm. really, really like that high of learning something. And, and uh, it, it's a process to do that. But I, it happened much, much later on. Uh, in life as, you know, as you have to grow old, you have to get to a certain point point realize that, uh, holy shit, I don't know as much as I thought I did, you know? <laughs> right. Right.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, that's exactly right. But, uh, glad you found, uh, an old radio buddy to work with and yeah, we've checked out your podcast. You got some, uh, you know, you guys obviously have good rapport and, and, uh, yeah, I'd encourage our listeners to go over there and, uh, check it out. Mind, body matters. I think we will let you go, Greg. Uh, Yeah, absolute treat having you on here. Thanks for
2: taking the time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys. Uh, Once again, I I appreciate the invite and having me on your show. Enjoy it. And I will continue to be a listener of Recovery Machine. I'll be out there listening. So uh, yeah, keep it it going, guys. Rock on. (laughs) All right. Sounds (laughs) good. Thank you, Greg. That's it for now,
0: everybody. We will see you next time.
1: Yeah, see you soon. Thanks.